Good morning. The reading this morning is the Song of Solomon, 6-4 to 8-4. He, you are beautiful as Tirzah, my love, lovely as Jerusalem, awesome as an army with banners. Turn away with your eyes from me, for they overwhelm me. Your hair is like a flock of goats leaping down the slopes of Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of sheep that have come up from the washing. All of, their bear, all of them bear twins. Not one among them has lost its young. Your cheeks are like halves of pomegranates behind your veil. There are 60 queens and 80 concubines and virgins without number. My dove, my perfect one, is the only one, the only one of her mother, pure of her who, done, who bore her. The young women saw her and called her blessed, the queens and concubines also, and they praised her. Who is this who looks down like the dawn, beautiful as the moon, bright as the sun, awesome as the army of, the, of banners, with banners? She, I went down to the nut orchard to look at the blossoms of the valley, to see whether the vines had budded, whether the pomegranates were in bloom. Before I was, before I was aware, my desire set me among the chariots of my kinsmen, a prince, others. Return, return, O Shalomite, return, return, that we may look upon you. He, why should you look upon the Shalomite as upon a dance before the armies? Song of Solomon 7. How beautiful. My eyes are playing on me. The vision's like, okay. Song of Solomon 7. How beautiful are you? I, I should read it from here. Yeah. <laughs> How beautiful are your feet in sandals, O noble daughter. Your rounded thighs are like jewels, the work of master's hand. Your navel is rounded bowl that never lacks mixed wine. Your belly is a heap of wheat encircled with lilies. Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle. Your neck is like an ivory tower. Your eyes are pools in Heshban by the gate of Bath Rabim. Your nose is like the Tower of Lebanon, which looks toward Damascus. Your head crowns you like caramel, and your flowing locks are like purple. A king is held captive in the tresses. O oh, beautiful and pleasant you are, O oh, loved one, with all your delights. Your stature is like a palm tree, and your breasts are like, like its clusters. I say I will climb the palm tree, and I lay hold of its fruit. O oh, my breasts are be like clusters of the vine, and the scent of your breath like apples, and your mouth like the best wine. She, it goes down smoothly for my beloved, gliding over lips and teeth. I am my beloved's, and his desire is for me. Come, my beloved, let us go out into the fields and lodge in the villages. Let us go out early to the vineyards and see whether the vines have budded, whether the grape blossoms have opened and the pomegranates are in bloom. There I will give you my love. The mandrakes give forth fragrance, and beside our doors are the choice fruits, new and new as well as old, which I have laid up for you, O oh, my beloved. Oh, that you were like a brother for me who nursed at my mother's breast. If I found you outside, I would kiss you, and none would despise me. I will lead you and bring you into the house of my mother, she who used to teach me. 
I will give you spiced wine to drink, the juice of my pomegranate. He has left, his left hand is under my head, and his right hand embraces me. I adore you, O daughters of Jerusalem, that you, that you not stir up our awakened love until it pleases. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. We, uh, we continue this morning our, our sermon series through Song of Solomon, and next week's the, the final week uh, in this uh, short six-week series. Uh, would you pray with me? Father, we ask that you would open our eyes uh, to understand your word, uh, that we would see uh, and behold Jesus in your scriptures, uh, that you would help us, Father, uh, for we are weak, and yet uh, you are strong and you, you make us strong in him. So we ask, Father, that you would help us in our weakness. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Um, so what, what is it that you desire? What is it that if you could obtain, if you could get, um, if you could secure it, it would lead to your happiness? That you're convinced, you know, this is the thing, that if I get that, I know I'll be happy. And that happiness can't be taken away. Is it um, job advancement? You know, a different career path or a better career path or a certain uh, career? Is it pleasure? Is it fame? Is it a fitter body, a healthier, better you? Um, is it good grades? Is it good health? Is it your parents' approval? What is it? What's, what's that thing that if you can get it, you'll be happy? You'll be satisfied? That you'll wake up and know that you're loved and, and you won't want anything else? Uh, so what's, what's your honest answer to that question? Honest answer. Uh, in a book called The Weight of Glory, uh, C.S. Lewis, he pointed out, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling around about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what it's meant by the offer of a holiday at sea, we are far too easily pleased. Hmm. See, everybody thinks that if we can just get X, you know, fill in the blank, if I can just secure that, then I'm going to be happy. And then I'll arrive. But, but all of that is mud pies in the slums. So there's so much more. There's something far more valuable and far more satisfying that can be ours. And so do you want to start growing in your desire for something more satisfying than mud pies in the slum? Do you want to find out that there's more? Are you tired of settling for the mud pies? Uh, there's a helpful sentence that I learned from uh, Jeff Vanderselt. He's a, another minister. Uh, and today's sermon out, outline is going to follow that. Uh, so our first point is, is um, talk about what you love. And the second thing I want to talk about is, is to love what you talk about. So talk about what you love. It's our first point this morning to help us uh, understand this kind of long stretch of, of Scripture this morning. Uh, so, so if you want to grow in your desire, if you want to grow in desire uh, for something or for someone, uh, talk about what you love. That's the first thing. So, so talk about the whole person you love, not just what they can give you. This is what our man uh, sets out to do in chapter 6. And and, I mean, as you're hearing it, 
aren't you a little bit, isn't some of it sound very familiar to you? Like something that we read previously that he told her before, maybe on their wedding day, as he was going through and recounting. It sounds a lot alike what he said uh, when he described her beauty then, but now he uses some new descriptors. So um, he compares her to cities and armies. So he says in verse 4, you're beautiful as Tirzah, my love, lovely as Jerusalem. So those are you know, two famous cities in Israel. Awesome as an army with banners. Turn away your eyes from me, for they overwhelm me. Your hair is like a flock of goats. Your teeth are like a flock of sheep. Then in verse 7, your cheeks are like halves of a pomegranate behind your veil. So this man, I mean, he's talking about what he loves. And he loves this, his beautiful wife. That's what we clearly see. So some of the, the, the great uh, philosophers... They thought, as we're thinking about what, what, what makes something beautiful, what is beauty, right? That question. It's a great philosophical question. At least Jay's probably really excited right now. Where's Jay? There you are. Yeah. Stoked, right? What is beauty? What is true beauty? Aesthetics. Uh, and, and so a lot of uh, the old philosophers thought that if something is, um, that, that the beauty is objective. So, so if a thing is beautiful, it's equally beautiful to everybody who gazes upon it. It's objective. And then others thought beauty was in the eye of the beholder. So it's particular. So it's kind of, it's subjective. Um, kind of like uh, the who's down in Whoville. I mean, come on, we're almost in Christmas, so. <laughs> Christmas illustrations are going to start flowing, right? So the who's down in Whoville with, uh, with the Grinch, uh, you know, and they're throwing away all of their trash. And, and uh, in the Jim Carrey edition, uh, Ron Howard, I think, directed that one. And, uh, you know, it goes up the chute. Um, all the way up to the mountain and drops in the, in the trash bin, of course, the Grinch's headquarters. And, uh, and he is just very happy to have their trash. Uh, I think Jim Carrey says, um, one man's toxic waste is another man's potpourri. You know, it's just, and he eats some nasty banana or some glass, you know. Um, but other philosophers, you know, they said that something is beautiful if it's useful. And then other philosophers, as you can imagine, philosophers like to debate things. So if something's useless, it's beautiful. So sheer, sheer uselessivity is, is what makes something beautiful. Um, I like how Roger Scruton, uh, a philosopher, uh, kind of more recent philosopher, how he defines beauty. He says, we call something beautiful when we gain pleasure from contemplating it as an individual ob- object for its own sake and in its presented form. It's a helpful definition. Very specific and geeky, so you can write that down, Jay. Uh, yeah. um, the man in this poem finds this woman supremely valuable, uh, beautiful to him, and he, do, he does just that, that Scruton, uh, how he defines beauty. Uh, she has all the beauty no one else compares to her. He gets satisfaction and delight in, in what he loves to talk about, in not just her physical appearance, but in her totality, her whole existence. He's caught up in her. He loves her body, her character, her person. And so in this scene, her, her beauty is compared to other things. First, it's the two famous cities um, in Israel. She's compared to a glorious army. And the, and the sight of her is, is so overwhelming to him that he has to ask her. He says, turn away. <laughs> Don't give me your stare. It's just, it's too intoxicating. It overwhelms me. Um, and then he, he points out her hair and teeth and cheeks. Uh, and, and, and again, he's used these, uh, these things before. 
when they were on their wedding day, he talked about her hair, her teeth, her cheeks. And so, so in, in bringing those up, reusing what he said from before, um, it's as if he's saying to her, you know, I, I love you today as much as when I first met you. I love you even more than on our wedding day. As, he, as he's defining her, her characteristics, her features. If you're married, husbands, uh, you know, revisit your, your vows. Revisit, um, walk down memory lane a little bit. Talk about the things that you love most about, about her. Um, so so he, he re-describes these things. Beauty is also defined by how special she is to him. And so it's not just comparison. He assigns her exclusive value worth to her. Verse 8. There are 60 queens and 80 concubines and virgins without number. Verse 9, my dove, my perfect one, is the only one, the only one of her mother, pure to her who bore her. And so she's unique to him. She's so special. All of his attention is, is focused on her. The favorite daughter of a, of a mother, the one out of uh, many women who's worth noticing, he says, my dove, my perfect one, is the only one. I want to just you know speak again, kind of directly, and just uh, directing uh, just husbands in the room. Uh, but you know, are you a one-woman man? Are you sold out for your bride? Do you love her? Do you do you talk about her because you you love to talk about her? Will you, as as most traditional marriage vows promise, forsake all others for as long as you both shall live? King Solomon, he had seven hundred wives. 300 concubines, probably more than that, actually. This is a guy who understood the goodness of sex. He understood that, right? God made sex, it's good, and he wanted to enjoy it to the fullest. Live his best life. The problem is he assigned too much value to sex and not enough value to the people whom he was having sex with. He assigned too much value to sex and not enough value to the God who is the giver of sex. Sex is good, but it can't satisfy us completely. And so the bits of good things that we experience, they only expose our longing for a a truer and better home, uh, a place where our deepest longings, our deepest desires can actually be satisfied. Um, In another book by Lewis, um, Mere Christianity, he has uh, an excellent way of summing this up. He says, creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for these desires exists. A baby feels hunger. A baby feels hunger. Well, there's such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there's such a thing as water. Men feel sexual desire. Well, there's such a thing as sex. If I find in myself a a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the obvious, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. So helpful. I mean, this this nails it. That good things in life, like sex and food, are good. They're really good. But they aren't the best. They don't ultimately satisfy. They, They point us to something beyond, to something, someone better and actually satisfying. The giver of sex and food. And the other thing is when we when we misuse sex like King Solomon did, uh, we end up doing some pretty bad things to others. So, uh, for example, with pornography, we turn people into objects, objects 
making others less than human, exploiting their bodies to meet our own needs. With sex trafficking, people are literally bought and discarded like toilet paper or other products on the market, sold and discarded. But sex is meant to be a a complete, a full, a robust, lifelong commitment between a man and a woman, sustained relationship where both are sharing heart and mind and body and, 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 and senses, as we're, as we're seeing in, this, uh, in the descriptions of, of the man and the woman in the, in the Song of Solomon, you know, the, the, the tastes and, and the smells and uh, all of that they're sharing together in this life together. And so what the man in this poem is saying is that he gets God's gift of marriage. He gets that a relationship is about more than just sex. My, my dove, my perfect one, is the only one, is what he says. And I wouldn't want anyone else to share that with because I'm giving her my, my all. So he sees the, the temptation of Solomon, and he knows he doesn't want that life. What he wants is true delight and satisfaction in his true love, nothing else. Um, another book recommendation, but uh, Tim and Kathy Keller wrote a, a book together uh, called The Meaning of Marriage, I highly recommend the book, and they helpfully say this. They say, but when the Bible speaks of love, it measures it primarily not by how much you want to receive, but by how much you're willing to give up, give of yourself to someone. How much are you willing to lose for the sake of this person? How much of your freedom are you willing to forsake? How much of your precious time, emotion, and resources are you willing to invest in this person? And for that, the marriage vow is not just helpful, but it's even a test. In so many cases, when one person says to another, I love you, but let's not ruin it by getting married, that person really means, I don't love you enough to close off all my options. I don't love you enough to give myself to you that thoroughly. The total and and complete and full giving of oneself to another is, is a picture that marriage paints of exactly what Jesus has done for his bride, the church. Full, total giving of himself for us. And I, I want to circle back to this in a little bit, um, but not to lose the point that we're on. Talk about the whole person, not just what they can give you. <laughs> Value the person. Talk about what you love with others. That's the other thing he does. So another way to grow in your desire for someone else It's to not only talk to them about what you love about them, but to talk about them to others. And so verse 9, it continues, The young woman saw her and called her blessed, the queens and concubines also, and they praised her. Verse 10, they said, this is quoting them, Who is this who looks down like the dawn, beautiful as the moon, bright as the sun, awesome as an army with banners? So they're joining in in the celebration of, of the beauty of this woman that this husband loves. And he's, he's so in, in love with her, he tells the world about her. Talk about what you love. So when you're asked a question, you talk about what you like. Man, have you ever met a sports fan? Well, I mean, there's plenty of sports fans, even in this room, right? Sports fans talk endlessly about the game and, and the stats. Man, they know stats really well. Like, you know, who just won this weekend? You know, was it Alabama or who, you know, like, what, what was it? And, and who are the players, right? And they talk about it so passionately that their, their passion is contagious, it makes you almost want to watch sports. Um, is your zeal for your spouse like that? Is it contagious like that? Do you talk about her or him? 
If you're at a point where you're struggling in your marriage right now, start talking about your spouse with them, to them, and, and with others. The second thing I want to talk about from, from our passages is love what you talk about. So if you want to, um, uh, the second half of, uh, uh, to talking about what you love is, is loving what you talk about. Those are two things interconnected. They belong to each other. The more we're talking about what, what something is kind of the more we're, we're growing in attention, sustained focus, and, and we end up loving the things that we're talking about. So we talk about what we love. For, uh, like Jesus says in the Gospels, from out of the heart comes what's inside of us. And we love what we talk about. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Also what Jesus says. What emerges next in this poem is the pure delight of a husband in his wife. Right? So he, he just, he, he's consumed by love for her. And so listen to how he describes every feature of her. Um, in a reverse wasif, I'm going to ask again. This is the third Sunday I'm going to ask this. Does anybody remember what a wasif is? Dexter's not here this Sunday, and he, he got it last week. So anybody else? Arabic poetry. Arabic, yeah, exactly. There you go. And, it, and, it, and it, it's a way of, of describing what you love about a person from what? Head to toe. Well, now he's loving her from toe to head, right? It's a reverse wasif. That's pretty cool, right? So um, from up and down, you know, loves every feature about her. So verse 1, chapter 7. How beautiful are your feet and sandals, O noble daughter. Your rounded thighs are like jewels, the work of a master hand. Your navel, your belly, then in verse 3, your, your two breasts, then in verse 4, your neck, your eyes, your nose, your head, your locks, right? Monogamy, a relationship between a man and a woman, it's, it's assumed to be very dull and boring. Oh, it's the worst. Why would you get hitched, right? Ever hear that before? Why would you go to the old ball and chain, right? Don't do that. Your life's over. Like, you know, it says just married. Like, you see the guy with the shirt, and it's like in shackles, right? No? I've never seen that? Okay, good. Well, don't, don't see that. Um, but, I mean, we hear the married jokes, the old ball and chain and all that. Um, the opposite's true. Notice that our man in this poem has only grown in his descriptions of his, of his love, right? He's only more attracted to her, not less. He has a lot more to say about her, not less the longer that they've been together. He has greater comparisons now since he knows her more than he knew her before. Marriage to the same person doesn't get old. Having a new partner um, on any given night is what gets old fast. With the emergence of Tinder and other hookup apps, sex is easy and it's cheap. There's no cost to it. There's nothing beautiful about it. There's no sacrifice or time involved. The problem with that is, is that since there's nothing to lose in a one-night stand, there's therefore nothing to gain. It's too cheap. So we love what we talk about. Listen to, to his delight in his bride. Verse 6, how beautiful and pleasant you are, O loved one, with all your delights. Love what you talk about. A husband loves his wife, and, and a wife loves her husband. She responds to him finally, verse 9, first time she says something back. She says this, she says, it goes down smoothly for my beloved, gliding over lips and teeth. And then uh, for, the, for the third time in verse 10, we see this, this refrain of promise. It's now the third time it's showing up in this poem. Uh, it sh- showed up in chapter t- at 2, chapter 6, and chapter 7. 
The first time, she declined his invitation, but affirmed that their commitment uh, to be married, right? She said, my beloved is mine. That was before they were married. And then um, the second time it shows up, she declares her submission to him, reversing it by saying, I am my beloved's, right? So a sense of, of true belonging, of, of sharing in, in, in their, their mutuality as a, as a married couple. And, and now for the third time, she keeps joyfully submitting to her husband, but something changes. And man, this is so, so awesome. I, don't, I, I want to point this out, kind of focus on it for a second. So the word, the word desire, the word desire right there in verse 10. This only shows up three times in the entire Bible, Old Testament. Three times. So this is the third time. The other two times are in Genesis chapter uh, 3 and Genesis chapter 4. Genesis chapter 3 with Adam and Eve, Genesis chapter 4 with Cain. Um, but in chapter 3, right, after Adam and Eve sinned, God pronounces a curse on Eve. And, and he says this, your desire will be for your husband and he shall rule over you introducing kind of where marriage conflict and strife, you know, why it exists and where it kind of stems from a little bit. Miscommunication and some hardship between the two uh, sexes, battle of the sexes. But look at what, what, he, what uh, she says now about desire. She says, and his desire is for me. So it's not just that her desire is for her husband, but his desire is now reversed and for her. And this is, this is kind of a restoration in this moment of their marriage, a restoration of that broken relationship, of, of true healing happening, of restoration, where the two become one, where two mutually delight in the other and submit to one another and both love what they talk about and talk about what they love, the other person. So have you taken time to delight in your spouse? Do you talk about her or him? Do you admire and revel in the beauty of the person whom you married. You love what you talk about. So after um, talking about marriage between a, a husband and a wife, Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 5, he said this mystery, so he's talking about marriage, this mystery is profound. And I'm saying it refers to Christ and the church, to Jesus and his bride. And so marriage works and it becomes delightful when each person in the marriage lives for the other person, in the greatest marriage, Jesus gave up his own life so that his bride could live. One of the biggest objections that people have with Ephesians chapter 5, uh, today anyways, with this Bible passage, is, is that it says a woman should submit to her husband. And I think what people forget is Paul says, before he even mentions that uh, a wife should be submissive, he says in verse 21, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. He's talking about all people submitting to one another. Um, people are to submit. And, and greater than that, the husband is later compared to being the Christ-like figure in the relationship. So what exactly does that mean? Well, a husband's to sacrifice himself as Christ did for his church, laying down his own life, laying down his own desires, truly loving his, his bride for the sake of his wife, and so, I mean, a man so head over heels and sacrificially living like that for a bride, I mean, I, who wouldn't want to submit to that? I mean, that's, that's beautiful. Um, it's a reflection of our relationship with God and Christ. And so, in the, in the same way that every married person is called to delight in their spouse,
In the same way that, that every married person is called to delight in, in their spouse, did you know that God wants to, to teach each of us, all of us, right, married or not, that God delights in us? Let me say this again. God delights in you. How do you feel about that statement? See, some people kind of do the shuffle, right? Like, like talk about him, right? Her behind me, not me. Some people instead, you know, just kind of look down or kind of like look off, kind of. You're not talking about me. You don't know me. You don't know my history, my past, what I've done or what's been done to me. Right? I'm not clean. Why would he look at me? Why would he look at me when I'm one out of a billion, billions and billions of people who've lived? Why would the maker of all things even give it a second of attention to me? let alone because of all the sins I've committed in my life. And yet all throughout the Bible, again and again and again, the message is what Isaiah 54 reminds us. Your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your redeemer. The God of the whole earth he is called. That this God, this, this, this creator of all things, does notice you. He does care. And he knows your failures. He knows your black marks, your stains. He knows your stained garments, and that's why he did something about them, by sending us his son, Jesus, to wash us of our sins. God took your failures in Christ upon himself, and he gives you his successes through faith in Jesus. He takes your ugly and replaces that ugly with his beauty, his goodness. And so God promises now to make you and me and all of his people into a beautiful, spotless bride, fully known yet fully loved. I hope what you're getting out of this, this um, quick series through so, uh, so, Song of Solomon, Song of Songs, is, is that the greatest love worth talking about is not human love. Good as it is, really good. The greatest love worth talking about is divine love. Of where the God who became human gave up everything so we would not only receive everything he gave up, but we would get himself. We would have relationship with him. The Bible begins, the, first, one, the very first story that we see you know, of, of, of people, uh, man and woman, Adam and Eve, it's, it's a story, a marriage ceremony. And then as we, as we flip through all the pages of the Bible, we go to the very end, and what do we see? Another marriage ceremony, right? The bride and his church, the, the final consummation, divine love. God cares a lot about marriage because marriage is a picture of the gospel. What is the gospel? That Jesus was beautiful, we're ugly. He gets our ugly on the cross, we get his beauty. The beautiful exchange, right? That he who knew no sin became sin that we might become the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians 5.21. That great exchange. And now, you know, believing this gospel, it might not fix your problems today. Not right now. You might still have marital strife later today as you're going home in the car. You might still be hoping to fall in love sometime. You might still be hurt by a past relationship that just stinks. And you're, and, you're, and you're hurt. But the gospel does have the power to meet you wherever you are 
And the gospel can give you a love that will never let you go. A love that can't be broken. A love that can never fall apart. A love that can never be taken from you by anybody. Nothing can separate. That's a love that can help you in your marriage conflict later today. It can help you wait until God brings somebody to you or doesn't because you're satisfied in him anyways. And it can help you heal from past relationships that really hurt. Because the gospel is the power of God into salvation for all who believe, for body and for soul, for thoughts and feelings, for our whole person, for all, all that we are. Um, I'm going to close with this. I, I love how... Uh, Tim and Kathy Keller put this, uh, the gospel's impact on us. Right? They say, the gospel can fill our hearts with God's love so that you can handle it when your spouse fails to love you as he or she should. That frees us to see our spouse's sins and flaws to the bottom and speak of them and yet still love and accept our spouse fully. And when, by the power of the gospel, our spouse experiences the same kind of truthful yet committed love it enables our spouses to show us the same, that same kind of transforming love when the time comes for it. May your heart be so full of the gospel that that would be true in all your relationships. That you would know and, and believe that, that in Christ, God delights in you. Right? God loves you and he actually likes you. Father, we thank you. We thank you for this great uh, song that shows us uh, glimpses of, of what looks like a perfect marriage, um, but only points us to a greater marriage still. That between you and your church. A relationship of brokenness on our part and healing on your part where you've turned our ugly into beauty you've turned all the dark places into marvelous light Father we thank you that you've clothed us in your son we thank you that you give us hope we thank you that you can help us in, our, in all of our relationships to begin to forgive past wrongs to to not get stuck in despair, to not get stuck, um, but to, to be able to forgive and to extend forgiveness to others, to be able to love the unlovable as you loved us who are completely unlovable. And yet you loved. Loved so much that you gave us your son. Loved so much that greater love has none than this, that, than that one shed his blood for his friends. Father, we thank you for that friendship we have in Christ. I pray, Father, that you would help us find that, that you would help us find satisfaction and delight in you as you in Christ already delight in us. Amen.